0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I are ready to introduce you to another great sermon, this one by Dr. Walter Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser has recently retired as the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He formerly served as dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. has been a great leader in the field of theological education and really the Church of Jesus Christ, broadly speaking. Had a wonderful ministry for many years. Uh, he's a great Bible scholar and a great biblical preacher. And what we're hearing today in this sermon is, a, is an expositional text taken and broken down and shelled out for God's people in a wonderful way.
1: You agree? Totally, totally. His challenge is to the church to exalt God in its worship and in its ways. He's the consummate pre- preacher, Dean George, in terms of conveying the larger narrative of the Scripture. So in essence, he is going to preach Daniel 4 and show it in the light not only of the prophetic prophetic genre, but in the light of canonicity, the whole Bible. He's a weaver. Mm-hmm. Putting together uh, the biblical text, that thread, and wrapping it around the thread of application, and he does this throughout the sermon.
0: In other words, he doesn't just give you, here's the text. Uh, here's the theology, here's the application. Exactly, But this is kind of interwoven throughout the, the texture of your
1: sermon. Yes, like a three-fold uh, cord is not easy, easily broken. Mm-hmm. Exactly what he does. He helps us to see this text, Daniel 4, Daniel and uh, this prophecy concerning Nebuchadnezzar uh, to show that Nebuchadnezzar, in contrast to God, is not great. The title of the sermon is Only God is Great. And we look at uh, the greatness of God through the lens of biblical history, church history, world history, and recent American history, showing in all of those uh, periods and epochs that God is great and he is the only one who is worthy of worship and worthy of praise. It's text driven. It's uh, it's not only text-driven, but uh, it's, it's contemporarily um, relevant. Oh. He even talks about his little two-year-old daughter, uh, granddaughter, who loved the Barney story and the Barney song, which is me-centered. Right. And he uses that to show how, as a culture, we have become so humanistic. To uh, extol our own greatness, when in essence, when he said, "This daughter, don't sing this." This granddaughter, don't sing it this way. That's not right. She keeps doing it yeah. because there's this propensity uh, toward meanness and Iness instead of weeness, and ultimately God being exalted.
0: Now you speak about the relevance of this sermon, and there is a book, not published very long ago, a best-selling book called "God Is Not Great." I know. And so this is a very relevant message, speaking Agreed. into what we call the revival of atheism in our time and the debunking of God in our culture. Uh, Dr. Kaiser takes a text from the Bible, plants his feet squarely within the biblical tradition, Absolutely. and then out of that speaks with great power and some humor also Absolutely. Uh, into uh, this kind of moment in which we live today. So let's join and listening to Dr. Walter Kaiser, a sermon from the chapel of Beeson Divinity School. Only God is great.
2: It's a special delight to share God's word with you this day. We want to turn to Daniel chapter 4. We want to look here at the great passage in the book of Daniel that comes at the center of that first half of his book together and talk about the theme of only God is great. Only God is great. This particular text is very special because it is written by one of the world's great leaders, Nebuchadnezzar. Written under the inspiration of God, I take it because of the point of view that this man came to was indeed the point that God wants us to come to as well magnifying the greatness of God. What a theme. What an important hiatus in the life and the experience of the church during these days. Daniel, the man of God who started out in Jerusalem but was carried off about 605 B.C. along with his three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, which has always been hard, for me to communicate to theological students, it's hard for them to remember Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. So as I told my class this morning, I try to popularize it a bit. My Shack, and your Shack, and a bungalow. The three of them went off with Daniel into captivity, and while he was there, Daniel was a man along with these three who, while they excelled in the studies that were given to them, yet they did it in a culture that was counterculture. They themselves maintained a testimony and a witness for the living God. But what they found out was not something about themselves or about their needs or the fact that everything God had been doing up to that point, he must now destroy For almost a millennia and a half, God had been building a seed. He had been building a land. He had been building a throne, a dynasty, a kingdom, a house of worship, and the whole thing was destroyed in a moment that all came down. 586, the fall of Jerusalem was a tragic moment, not just a tragic moment in the history of uh, political relations, It was a tragic moment for theology, a tragic moment for the church too as well. For everything now seemed destroyed. What is left? (laughs) Same thing that was left when Jeremiah gave his witness. He wrote in the book of Lamentations, Great is thy faithfulness. God's faithfulness is new every morning. We generally have an opportunity where when we have the burning of the church debt, we ask the congregation, let's all stand and sing, great is thy faithfulness. But here when the church burnt down, they said, let's stand and sing, great is thy faithfulness. It's a little different. It's the opposite flavor in theology. What remained was God. God remained. As much like the days in toward the end of the greatness of the French Empire, Louis the Fourteenth, who died in seventeen seventeen, wanted to be known as Louis the Great. Louis the Great. He had ordered uh, that his uh, people referred to him as Louis the Great. He'd also ordered too his funeral. He said, I want to be wheeled in my casket, wheeled into Notre Dame. I want all the candles extinguished in that great cathedral. But he said, on top of my coffin, I want a big candle. And I want it lit. And I want Muslan, the great court preacher, I want him to preach. Muslan ascended that high pulpit and walked up to it as he saw that... uh, casket with this light still on it and it did not seem appropriate. He went down in a dignified manner, went up and blew out the candle snuffed it out well and then mounted the pulpit and began with these words, only God is great only God is great. Louis the 14th was dead. We have some furniture left from him, but that's about all. There's not much left of Louis the 14th. And this chapter of Nebuchadnezzar comes to the same conclusion too as well. Only God is great for he will say in verse 17, in verse 25, in verse 32, three times over. I take it for those of us who are not too swift that it is repeated here so that we can catch it. He says the decision is announced in verse 17 by the watchers. Very unusual word. only occurs here in the biblical terminology. I take it a reference to messengers, uh, divine messengers, angels. It is announced by the watchers, the messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know. That the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and he gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That was in verse 17, but again, verse 25, the same thing is repeated. You will be driven away is the message given to Nebuchadnezzar. And you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle, be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass over you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone He wishes. And one more time, verse 32. Now a testimony coming out of this. You will be driven away From your people you will live with the wild animals, you will eat grass like the cattle, seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. So what is happening on our planet? Where can I find stability? How can I find my needs met? (laughs) I must not begin horizontally with myself, with my needs. My little granddaughter, two years of age, loves the Barney song, the little dinosaur, the purple dinosaur. She loves the song, too. She sings it like modern evangelicals sing it. I've tried to correct her, but I can't. She sings it this way. I love me. You love me. We're a happy family. That's it. She loves me. You love me. That's how we can be a happy family. Because we're all me-centered. Me-centered. I try to tell her, no, no, those are not the words. I try to turn it around. But more than that, our generation needs to get the vertical look. I need a sense of the greatness for God. For the greater God becomes in my estimation, the more perspective other things gain. I have a better view on the church a better view on myself a better view on the political movements of our day Indeed, I need to come to understand all over that it is not the battles not being carried on amongst the theologians. It's not being carried on in denominational courts. It's not being carried on and fought out in the streets in the jungle. It's being fought at a level in which there is a remnant of men and women who still know that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He wishes. And if any generation ought to know that, it ought to be our generation. Christmas 1989. All of a sudden, God changed on Christmas Day the whole complexion of world history. If not just Eastern Europe, it was all over. Asked them as the Ceausescu's fled on that day. And for 40 years, where on radio and TV, there had not even been a hymn or even a Christmas carol. For the first time, they heard once again that indeed the living God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he wishes ask them as they gathered in Wenceslas Square 300,000 they sang Christmas hymns and the government fell I read a lot of history of sieve, and about how coups affect and how you bring down a government but hymn singing did not occur in my book It wasn't one of those that brought about a revolution, but it did. And what I was told as a boy, that communism will take over the world, and that's the future, and where history is going, all of a sudden, 70 years were finished. They were finished because the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men, and He gives it to whom... He would. Yes, not only Louis the Great, but the whole world has got to come to terms with only God is great. Only God is great. We say that we have a a great economic forecast. We say that this or that is great or that we've got great church or great denomination or great schools or great scholarship. But we've got to come to terms with the fact that when push comes to shove, only God is great. And that's what this chapter is talking about. Matter of fact, the man himself, Nebuchadnezzar, ends with this testimony. The last words of chapter 4, And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. He was there. He was there. He said after 35 years of reigning, I've done it all. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built? And it was. It was a fantastic place. Babylon had that amazing city. Walls 100 feet high. Wide enough at some spots where six chariots could go abreast. It was also one that had eight gates into it, including that famous Ishtar Gate, now reconstructed in the Berlin Museum out of remnants that have come from it. And there, with the main street a 1,000 yards long, on either side with 250 line figures and 575 dragon figures for the goddess and goddesses, 50 chapels up and down with Marduk's chapel at the far end of the whole thing with the Euphrates River 600 feet wide coming through the middle of the city running down with a suspension bridge stretching over the 600 feet, 30 feet wide and ferries at either end of the city to take people back and forth between the two sides. And he in his... Fabulous! what the Greeks called one of the seven wonders of the world with the hanging gardens there. He struts out in the evening and he says, is this not the great Babylon that I have built? And he says this in verse 29, 12 months later, after he had had a vision, a vision of a tree, massive tree. He saw this vision in verse 13. He said a messenger, a holy one came down from heaven after he showed him this tree in verse 10. Enormous. It was large and it was great. This word great occurs in verse 11, verse 20, verse 22, verse 30. There is a juxtaposition between the greatness of this tree and the greatness of God. And that's the counterpart here greatness of the greatest kingdom the greatest empire we'd seen in that day stretching practically from the Indus river all the way down to the Nile and up into the Peloponnesus in Greece a fabulous hunk of real estate so he says that's it I've done it all and that's it and he said it grew large and and it was great and it touched the sky and was visible to the ends of the earth this is a hyperbole, obviously. And he said its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was fruit for all. And under it the beast of the field found shelter. The birds of the air lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. I take it he had licked the homeless problem. I take it he would licked the hunger problem. For an empire of that size, this man is great, or so it seemed. But then a messenger came from God and said in verse 14, cut it down, cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and its roots bound in iron and bronze and remain in the ground in the grass of the field. And then suddenly with a change in the middle of verse 15 from the third person neuter from the it reference and it's now suddenly let him be drenched with the dew of heaven let him live with the animals among the plants of the field let his mind be changed and let uh, from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal for seven years till seven times pass over him. What's happening here in this passage and what is he trying to say? It seems to me that there are at least four areas in which God is going to demonstrate not only to Nebuchadnezzar, but will demonstrate to us His greatness. Four areas. The first area, God is great in His works. And once again, we're called, as the psalmist called us, come, let us behold the works of God. Nebuchadnezzar sent this word out to the people, the nations, and the men, verse 1, of every language who live in all the world. Talk about missions. He wanted it to be understood that this was universal regardless of what your language was, regardless of what your ethnic background was. He said, I have a word for you. First of all, may you prosper greatly, which was a greeting. And he says, my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the most high God has performed for me. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Talk about the works of God. The action of God? For two years prior, I take it, uh, this man had in uh, 572 ended his long siege of Tyre. He had been frustrated in that. Thirteen years he hadn't been able to take the city. The people moved from the mainland half mile out to the island city of Tyre. But God gave him Egypt as a bonus, as a reward. And so he came back home. He came back home feeling he had done it all. He had done it all. But he said, I want to tell you the experience I've had. And now he writes this apparently in retrospect. And he said, I want all peoples, all languages. And I take it he thinks that he rules over all of them at that point. What the most high God has done for me. Do you know about his works? Do you know what God has done? Do you know about his kingdom? And practically in the same words as Psalm 145, verse 13, God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God's dominion endures through all generations. He said, that's what I found out about him. Look what God has done in history. Look what God is doing. Look what he has done in my own life. Do you understand the works of God? So frequently we have written off. I think we have passed 1989. I think we have forgotten what took place in the Soviet Union, uh, the former Soviet Union. I think we have forgotten what God did in Eastern Europe. I think we have forgotten what God has done in 21 of Toynbee's 21 previous civilizations. I think it is high time that the church comes to understand, listen, only God is great. Only God is great. No nation can compete with God. We must ask the question that is asked in the biblical text in that magnificent text of Isaiah 40. To whom, to what then shall we compare God? What is God's match? What is His equal? To whom then will we liken God? What sort of gang warlord will be equal to him? What sort of drug cartel is equal to him? What sort of political movement and machinations of men to the right or to the left is equal to the living God? And he can go on to ask that about personal lives and about families and about scholars and about the people in the workforce. He can ask it about sons and daughters too as well. Ah, listen... This text talks about the miracles, it talks about the the general works of God, and it declares them to be in a category that are unique, unique to him. But also, it moves beyond verses 1 and 3 to a second area. For in verses 4 through 18, he is marvelous also. God is great in his warnings. He's not only great in his works, but look what he does in his warnings. He said, I was at rest in my house. I, Nebuchadnezzar, and I was contented and prosperous. The only thing wrong in my whole realm was a dream. Would that we had administrative posts like that today. There's only one thing wrong in all of the countries, in all of the territory, in all the economy that he was handling. He said, it was my dream. And that terrified me. So I commanded all my wise men and brought them together, the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners. He did that previously. Several years back, he brought them in Daniel chapter 2. These fellows are fakes. They're charlatans. There he goes again. He's going to consult them again. He said, I told them the dream, but they couldn't. They couldn't interpret it. At last, verse 8, Daniel came into my presence. Apparently Daniel holds back once again and he's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. He said, I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you. No mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream interpreted for me. And so he tells of the dream. And I suppose that uh, these uh, magicians, enchanters, and astrologers could have well interpreted I think they, we've found books. We know that they had rules by which they interpreted these kinds of things. This time he tells them the dream. In Daniel 2, he said, I suspect you fell, so you tell me the dream first, then give me the interpretation. This time he gave them the dream. But they must have suspected it was a dream of humiliation and therefore they were going to have no parts of it. So it was Daniel's turn. And Daniel is here now brought forward as one who is to to give the meaning of the text and what is to take place here. For he said, I saw a tree. Trees are often used in Scripture as a symbol of the, the kingdom of God, for example. In Matthew, you have that uh, the birds of the air will come and roost in this, which is small and mustard seed and grows into a tree. You also will have Pharaoh as a cypress or Pharaoh as a cedar tree. And Isaiah talks about the oak, too, that will grow. But in all of them, it is clear he is talking about the man's kingdom. The man who has become great in their day. Look at its height. It's unprecedented. Look at its bulk. It is massive. Look at its leaves. They are healthy and they're beautiful. Look at its fruit. It's abundant. And look at the the distribution. All were fed. All were fed. But a watcher, an angel, came from heaven... Do you believe in angels? You should if you drive. Uh, There, You need angels, and the biblical text talks about it. Angels are not effeminate creatures with an impossible number of wings. They are God's messengers who perform his will and fulfill his word. Angels visit church meetings, too. I think angels must get a kick out of some of our churches. Not here, but I'm thinking out in the west coast. Uh, just share this as a prayer request. But, uh, there are, there are times when I think they must say, now there's a good one. That's really good. I don't have that in the text, you understand. That's marginal. And therefore, you should make a distinction between what's in the text. That's inspired. And I'm perspired, so that's how you tell the difference. But at any rate, uh, here God sent these messengers, curious messengers, those who are desirous of looking into the, the plans that God has for the redemption of his people. Peter talks about that. But they also are God's lieutenants who are used to both restrain evil and to come and to warn of what is to take place. Here they appear in this apocalyptic type literature and finally he said, this is the dream, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. Tell me what it means. For now he must come and give the essence of what this word is. Why did God send the messengers? Why did God send the dream? Because like in our day, God wants those who have an opportunity to turn. This is what preaching is about. This is the mission of the church. This is what we're trying to do. We're not trying to start a revolution. The prophets were not revolutionaries in the sense that they were trying to go to social structures of their day and to pull down the social structures. They wanted to get at those social structures, but they wanted to get at it mainly through the changed Parts of a remnant, a faithful remnant, a moral minority, if you please. The few who knew God and he said they've got to do U-turn theology. There must be a turning around by those who know God. They can't, we can't imitate what is being done in our culture and still expect the judgment of God to be stayed off from any country, any people any church and so the great message of the prophets was shuv turn shavu turn turn ye God is trying to give us a as I tried to pun in one situation God is trying to give us a a shuv in the right direction he wants us to turn around to do 180 degrees and he wants us to come back to himself. So God will send his warning through his word and will become tone deaf to his word. Then God will speak through the events of culture. It is my estimation God spoke to my World War II generation on Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941. And ask me, as uh, growing up uh, in my teen years, coming through uh, toward the latter part of that, 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, you don't think God spoke? And was there a response? Yes. G.I.'s came back, men and women, from serving particularly in the fiercest of all the battles in the Pacific 25,000 men and women went into missionary service from the United States of America alone. They just retired last year, the year before. God spoke to the boomer generation too. November twenty-second, 1963, on a grassy knoll in Dallas. Friday afternoon, one thirty this time. I remember or was. You probably, if you were alive, you remember too. Someone broke into the Bible department office and said the president's been shot. Well, in those days, you asked President who, because all presidents were at risk. And they said President Kennedy. Our class got back together. I remember those Sad days that followed that we suspended classes for the weekend and Monday we watched more TV. I saw another man shot right on TV. He was supposed to be the man who was to be charged. What is going on here? Watched as down Pennsylvania Avenue that sad cortage went down. Little John saluting his father as he went by. Enough to tear the heart out of a nation. We got back together in class. It was Tuesday or Wednesday. I had a class of college graduates, uh, seniors, and, and uh, Christian apologetics. And one fell in the front row, Bill, said, why did your God do that? I said, beg your pardon? I heard him, but I needed time. And uh, he, he repeated the question again. Why did your God do that? And I said, my God, Bill, I thought he was yours. And, and never mind, the whole class got upset. and They saw I was in trouble, so they tried to help me. They said, it's Father's way, made his money, booze. And... Oh, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. We had elephants and donkeys uh, running all through the class. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And I restored order, and we got it back from the political thing. And I said, uh, I didn't know what to say. I was dying to hear what I had to say. Uh, they're all looking at me, you know, now, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, what What is God saying through this? And I said, well, I'm not a prophet. And uh, my father was a farmer, so I'm not a son of a prophet. And I work for a non-profit organization. And so I can't really predict what is going to take place here. But I will tell you this, I said, if God is trying to say something to us, then all of a sudden, one of the most dramatic moments in my teaching, I recall... Leviticus 26 Deuteronomy 28 Amos 4 I sent too much water in one city not enough in another, and yet you've not turned back to me I sent some of your sons off to war and yet you've not turned back to me I sent you the diseases like the plagues of Egypt and yet you've not and yet and yet and yet and yet five times five times you've not returned no shavu no turning back to me no you turn theology Therefore, hear, O Israel, uh, prepare to meet your God. One, two, three, four, five, goodbye, northern kingdom. It was all over. God had said, that's enough. He was not talking soteriologically. He was talking politically. He was talking about the life of the nation. It was all over. So I said, Bill, do you remember the passage? No, no, he didn't remember. I said, Well, Bill, if God is trying to say something to us, it'll come in series. I wish I could have brought the class back 1963, 64, 65, 66, 67. Watts, Berkeley, Newark, Madison, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. Boom, boom, boom. You don't think God talked? He screamed. He shouted to a people, turn, turn. And was there turning? Yeah, well, interestingly enough, mainly the parachurch ministry. Parachurch ministry. There's one point at which one-fourth of the 21 million students in universities and colleges around the United States and Canada were, were personally given a challenge of who is Jesus Christ and what do they think of him. And would they like to receive him as personal Lord and Savior? Mm-hmm. And the in-gathering through the 70s was awesome. I like to think that perhaps, and remember, I'm not a prophet, but I would like to think perhaps God spoke last year, April eighteenth, 1995, Oklahoma City, And if my guess, and that's all it is, is right, then God is still talking to the Buster generation, the X generation, and God is calling one more time. And I expect that if that's true, that there's a, this belongs to a series just as well as the others did too. God sends warnings. God continues to call people and God continues to call generations. Listen, do you understand? Who are you going to compare me to? What principle? What issue? What force? What government? What group of people? What group of strategists even within the theological realm are you going to liken me to? I loved when I used to listen to the news to hear the name Mikhail Gorbachev. I loved it. Mikhail is a beautiful Michael or Michelle or Micah. He'd ask the question, "Am I?" is Hebrew, who? And the SH or CH is as. And the AL or YA form is God. Who can compare to God? Imagine that. Here's the head of the whole atheistic system asking the right question. He asked the right question. Who can compare to God? I used to hear even Dan Rather who got under my skin at times, but he would say, Mikhail Gorbachev. And before he would say Gorbachev, I would say, Amen. Amen. That's it. Who can compare to God? Who is his equal? And our text here also has a third area too as well. For it not only says that God is incomparably great in terms of his work and in terms of his warning, but also in his wrath too. Look at verse 19 through 33. He finally gives the meaning of the dream here. He said, listen, I wish this dream were about your enemies. But verse 22, you, O king, you, O king, you are that tree. This is like Nathan the prophet with that bony finger in which he points to David and says, thou art the man. You're the man. So he says here too, king, you're that tree. And you've become great. And strong and your greatness has grown and it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. And you saw a messenger coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree. You heard that? That's you, O king. For the Most High has issued, verse 24, against my Lord the king. This indictment you'll be driven away. And you'll live with the wild animals and you'll eat grass like the cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven times will pass over you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever He will. Now, could He have repented? Uh, That's always the invitation here. Only those... That are the unilateral covenants of God, the covenant he made with the seasons with Noah in Genesis 8, the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the covenant that he made with David, the new covenant, the covenant with the heavens and the earth. God passed between the pieces, not Abraham. It was unilateral. God says, in effect, may it happen to me what has happened to these animals that are cut in half on either side, forming the aisle down here. If I do not keep what I promise, it was not bilateral. He didn't say, now, Abraham, you walk through and if you default, then I can default. But what about all the other promises of God in the prophets? Those are all conditional. They have a suppressed and unexpressed unless and if about them. Here Jonah, as he goes to Nineveh, somewhat reluctantly, Had a whale of an experience before he finally got there, somewhat down in the mouth, but he got there and he was sent up and must have looked like something out of a Clorox bottle. He walks around and he says here, 40 days, 40 days, and this place is gone. Burn, baby, burn, 40 days. I said, I want no decisions. No one come forward. The buses will not wait. And he wanted uh, no kind of response whatsoever. He said, I'm just here to tell you 40 days. And the king said... uh, uh, tell us, uh, you yourself were headed out to Spain, I take it? Uh, yeah. Uh, you were disobedient against God? You were sinning like we are? Well, forget that point. Yeah, but that's true, but forget that point. And God was merciful to you? Well, yes, at times, but of course, I'm Jewish. Uh, no, 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 no. The king says we're going to repent. And that, uh, poor Jonah is out there in the wilderness counting off 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, plus 1, plus 2. Told you, told you. That's why I didn't want to come up here. These people, I don't like them. I don't like them. I wanted to see them go. Forty days, just a little over a month, we came that close. Came that close. But look what God says here. He tells his man so that he could turn. But did he turn? No. 20, verse 29 says, 12 months later, the king was walking on the roof of his palace and he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence for my by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And the words were still on his lips. When a voice came from heaven and said, This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away. You'll be driven away from the people. You'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like cattle. And seven times will pass by you until, until, until you acknowledge that only God is great. That only God is great. So at that very hour, verse 33... What was said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people. He went into Boanthropy. It is a condition we know today. He was driven away from his people. He ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. And his hair grew like uh, feathers of an eagle and the nails like the claws of a bird. But at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. This man who was a tree was out of his tree. And now he comes back and he said, Then I praised the Most High. I honored and I glorified him because God's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking now. He said, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth and no one. Can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? No one. The same time my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my advisors, and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything God does is right. And all his ways are just. And those that walk in pride, he is able to humble. The last area here. God is great in all of his ways. Not just his works, not just his warnings, uh, not just his wrath, but look at his ways. He says everything he did was in the right. He was in the right. He was fair. He was just. And I want to tell you, only God is great. Only God is great. Can you hear the call to the church today? Oh, Lord, lift our eyes up. Come on. My eyes are so bent horizontally. I look at the issues and I say, what's going to happen to us theologically? The evangelical world is about ready to splinter itself into four or five major factions. And if we don't do it over theology, we'll do it over worship form and how we worship in the house of God. And if we don't do it over that, we'll do it over personalities. Lord, save us from ourselves. How can we begin to even sense once again your blessing? And the answer is Ah, oh, come back and turn. Do you turn theology and find out? Only God is great. Only God is great. And so he calls us in that wonderful moment. What a great moment in the history of the church. A vacuum now exists in the Western academic world. If we we're to learn anything, some of us need to go back to Eastern Europe. They've been there. They came to our universities. They'll say this. We took your philosophy and put it into full tilt and we rode the train all the way to the end. You want to know where you're headed? Watch us and see what happened as the Berlin Wall comes down. See what happened in Romania. See what happened there in Czechoslovakia. See what happened in Poland. See what happened in Russia. Do you understand? The proven emptiness of the West could produce the finest hour Tom Oden has talked about the 200 years moving from the fall of the Bastille in 1789 to the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989. 200 years of of humanity, of anthropology without that vertical dimension. Listen, listen, we're at a critical moment. And with us rest here, a decision at this time. Are we going to imitate the image makers of our day? Are we going to imitate all the stuff that we think is great? Or do we come back in humility and out of pride and say, Listen, only God is great. Lord God, give me a whole new vision of yourself. Fill me not with myself, but fill me with a view of the grandeur of your person and teach me first of all what it means to worship, to give proper worship, and then to answer the question to whom to what am I going to liken the living God? And my cry ought to be nothing. Nothing can compare to him. May our Lord help us in these days to be men and women who'll dare by God's grace to stand in the gap because of his greatness. And dare to say it to our generation and to practice it. Practice it in the home, practice it in the office, practice it in the church. Practice it in the sanctuary. Yes, in the halls of learning. Because only God is great. And if we don't, he still will be great. Even over the ashes of the United States of America, the greatness of God will still triumph. God is not handicapped by any in the West. He's not handicapped by any in the world. Anywhere, he can raise up from the stones people to praise him. And he will. He will. May our Lord help us to respond. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website,